from the bottom of my heart. Yes, Lord. Bless his holy name. We ask that you would turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. That's the book of Acts, chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. And if you found the sacred scripture, would you please acknowledge it by simply saying, Yes, Lord. And would you please stand for the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. Acts 20, verses 17 through 38. The word of God says this. Now now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonments and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will ever see my face again. Mm, mm, mm. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. For I did not shrink from delivering to you the whole counsel of God. Pay attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. 
remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I covered no one's silver, gold, or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and hearing, but most importantly, the understanding and living of his holy word. You may be seated. The Greek word for bishop is episkopos, and the Greek word for elder is presbyteros. The bishop is the superintendent, the overseer, the officer in charge of the congregation. In the Bible, in Ephesians 4.11, bishops are also called pastors. So the qualifications for bishops, pastors, elders are found in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and this is what it says. Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him. And he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. We see Paul here instructing Timothy on the things that exemplify a good minister. You know, holding leadership position, holding a leadership position in the Christian congregation does not make one a spiritual leader. Spiritual leadership is not an occupation It is a calling. Only when you understand leadership in the light of God's calling on your life will you be equipped to lead effectively. Whenever we look through the Bible, we see that God is not necessarily looking for leaders, not in the sense that we generally think of leaders. What God is looking for are servants. Isaiah 59 
15 through 16. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him. He saw that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and he wondered that there was no one to intercede. Them on his own arm, he brought salvation. His righteousness upheld them. God is looking for men who are as offended by sin as he is, who will lead people to his will and to his way. You cannot lead if you're not willing to follow. God is looking for kingdom men with a kingdom vision, but first they must be reinvigorated. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we just look to you this morning. From the bottom of our hearts, we offer our surrender to you. We repent of our past behavior. We repent of our past mindset. We repent of our selfishness in leadership. We repent of having more pride in the status than the sacred work you have called us to. Break our hearts today, O Lord. Remold us so that you might use us. It is in the precious name of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we ask it all. And all God's children said amen. amen. Now, my Letus was a prosperous coastal town about 30 miles away from Ephesus. And we see here, as the scripture tells us, Paul is calling, he's summary, he's asking for the elders to come and speak to him. Now, you can tell by how forceful this language is here that this situation must be wrapped in great gravity. Paul calls the elders that he might reinvigorate them. He might refocus them. He might recommit them to their calling. Calling someone an elder who has not been truly called by God is a futile act. Paul understood that you could not form a good leader from the substance of a poor follower. Only a good leader can be formed from a good follower. So he intentionally chose these people that God had placed on his heart. Look at Acts 14.23. And when they had appointed the elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. So he took it to God in prayer. He abstained from physical food and he allowed God to sustain him with spiritual food that he can make a good decision. With prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So then Paul starts his whole piece off here with the fact that he gives them an example from his own past. In leadership, you are called to not just talk the talk, but to walk the walk. So you see here, here's a ministry that can be honored because he's going to reinvigorate them and refocus them and recommit them by simply recalling his past. He recalls the past methodology of his ministry, which is a righteous past. He tells him, first of all, I want you to remember how I lived before you. 
and how I lived before you from the first day that I set foot in Asia. And he states this three times during the appeal, during this speech. He wants them to go back, pick up that knowledge of how he dealt with them from the first day. He wants to make sure that it is in their mind as clear as possible. He puts in here this emphatic pronoun. He says, you yourselves. Paul says, you yourselves know how I live. You see, when he says that, he's suggesting that these elders were not some brief acquaintance, but that they were elders that chose to have a close relationship with one another. You know, if you're an elder in the church and if your relationship with other elders and your pastors doesn't rival your relationship with your wife, do you understand you're dishonoring God? It's that deep of a relationship. Pastors and elders must work hard to duplicate the closeness that we see evidence here in the scripture. And he tells them the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. We found out later that he was there three years, one of the longest uh, pastorates he had. And then he goes on in 19, he says, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Now, he's not just talking about what happened to him in Acts chapter 13 through 19, but he's talking about all through his ministry. Look at Acts 14, 1 through 7. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord. Even though they're persecuted, they don't run. They stand firm. He goes on and says, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra, to Derby, to Lyconian and to the surrounding countries, but they continue to preach the gospel. Look at Acts 17, five through nine. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked man of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, they were seeking to bring Paul out to the crowd, but Paul had already escaped, right? And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down. Stop right there. This is a mob that's afraid of three or four men. 
That shows if you walk in the center of God's will and his leadership, he will provide power that you will be amazed by. So they said these men who had turned the world upside down have come here also and Jason has received them and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city and authorities were disturbed when they heard these things and when they had taken money as security from Jason. Now, basically, they made them pay a bond so that they could stay in the city and the bond would ensure their good behavior, that they would tone it down a little bit. After they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. So we see this Paul, he served the Lord with great humility. He served the Lord in tears. This was the pattern of his humble service. And really, when you look at Paul's humble service, you can see it reflected in the very ministry of Jesus. Go to Luke 22, 24 through 27. Luke 22, 24 through 27. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you be as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. I'm telling you, God's not looking for leaders. He's looking for servants. And if he gets servants, he'll make leaders out of them. For who is the greater, the one that reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You see here? Paul's service involved the ministry of serving the flock of God. He's working to supply his own practical needs. He's working to supply the needs of his companion. He was a humble servant, and every good elder wants to have the same reputation, the same relationship. You want to be a servant by staying true to the mantle and the ministry that you have been called for. That means never backing down or holding back the truth of the gospel in your teaching. Look at verse 20. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Elders. This is not about popularity. It's about doing what is proper. If you do what is proper, you might not always be popular with the congregants. But you are a watchman on the wall. And you have to tell the truth. Paul insisted on just telling them only things that will be helpful, only things that will be profitable. This whole verb here, shrink back, has a sense of hesitating because of fear, fear of what people might think. Your fear should be of what God might think. Yeah. 
Because our first responsibility is to him who called us. Hebrews 10, 35 through 39. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And, listen to this, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. When you shrink back, you lose your covering. When you shrink back, you lose your confidence. You lose your centeredness. We're not those who shrink back, not those who are being destroyed, but those who have faith and persevere our souls. So what happens here? When we see this verb shrink, it comes up twice in this passage. So I think it intimates that some of these elders had faced temptation before, and because they had faced temptation before, they had probably watered down the message but Paul refuses to dilute the truth and we see that once again in 2nd Corinthians 4 1 through 6 therefore having this ministry by the mercy of God we do not lose heart walk it back therefore because we have been called to this ministry and we've been called through the mercy of God that we are not discouraged we do not lose heart but we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word when he talks about this when merchants would go to a big festival and they would have a greater turnout than they expected they would get uh, challenged because they want to make a greater profit so what would they do they would go and take the wine and dilute it so it would go further that they can sell more and receive a greater profit Ministers of God's gospel can't decide they want to dilute and temper down God's word where they can stand before more people and where more people feel comfortable because there's going to be a whole lot of comfortable people in hell. So Paul goes on, he says, we refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of truth, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. This is so important because every sermon you hear, you are a secondary listener. You are a secondary audience. The first audience is God who holds me accountable to preach his word the way he wrote his word. You are ear hustling at best. But you should respond to what you hear. But I'm evaluated on what I preach and proclaim. You're evaluated on how it depicts in your behavior. Look what he says here. Got quiet. Look what he says here. And even 
If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. So, you said, Pastor, what if they don't, if they don't get it, they weren't supposed to get it. It's veiled because they're perishing. In their case, look what he says. In their case, the God, small g, of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus our Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So don't be afraid of their faces. Don't be afraid that they walk past you at the door in the back. Don't be afraid. You know, that clock is going to be one of the people I see in heaven because whenever you look at me crazy, I look at that clock and just preach to the clock. Because I know the clock is listening. The face hasn't changed. But you, you're a different story. Paul's first priority was to preach and proclaim the word. And he said, I did this publicly. I did it in the synagogue. I did it in the hall. I did it from house to house. And what did he do? He tells you in 2021, testifying to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what does it mean to call people to repentance? A call for repentance toward God is turning away from every form of rebellion in order to serve the true and living God on his terms. You're going to have to turn away from everything that is in rebellion to God. Acts 17, 30-31. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Guess who that might be? Jesus. And on this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. We must have faith in our Lord Jesus. That's where our repentance starts. Paul is preaching a focused way for people to turn away from idolatry, to turn away from those things that are in rebellion to God. Because you think about it, when you look at turning away from idolatry and turning to faith, that is really Uh, two sides of the same coin and Paul makes it clear in his epistles that repentance always involves turning away or turning away from sin the things in the world that distract us the things in the world that disappoint us the things in the world that detach us from the center of God's will and to turn fully to Christ we must continually turn away from everything that displeases God. Second Corinthians 
7, 9 through 10. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief, listen to this, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regard, whereas worldly grief produces death. The wages of sin is what? Death. We see here in his preaching and his teaching, he continued to issue the call for faith and repentance in response to God's gracious initiative in Jesus Christ. Genuine faith demands repentance, my friends, and sincere repentance will always flow to his saving grace. We see here that Paul responds to an unknown future. If you look back at Acts 19.21, we'll see that Paul's decision to go somewhere, to go to Jerusalem, is because of the Spirit. And here we see the same dramatic turn when he calls the Ephesian elders. Look at verse 22 of chapter 20. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing What will happen to me there? I think it's clear in this language. He's suggesting that it's the Holy Spirit that is the source of his compulsion. The Holy Spirit has arrested him, taken him captive. Has the Holy Spirit ever arrested you? Taking you captive, taking you away from how you want to do something and to do it the way the Spirit declares that you should? He says, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what the outcome is, but I'm going because the Spirit has sent me. That is what obedience requires. When God, the Holy Spirit, compels you to move or to do something, whether you understand it fully or not, whether it causes discomfort, whether it challenges that there might be danger you just do it because you trust God you trust the one that has called you he says I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prisons and hardships are facing me he saw these warnings in Tyree and he saw it in Caesarea But now the Holy Spirit is driving him to undertake another journey. We see that even Paul dealt with it in Romans 15, 30-33. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from unbelievers in Judea and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. See, he had a willingness to lose his life. Until you are willing, what did Jesus say? If you lose your life, you're what? Save it. If you save your life, you will what? It's just opposed to everything this world is teaching us. 
Acts 21, 13 through 14. Look what Paul says. Then Paul answered, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we cease and said to him, let the will of the Lord be done. You know, if you, you know when you've heard the voice of God and nobody's going to be able to convince you that you should not go, even if they might think it's not in your best interest. He goes on in 24a, he says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. Don't you see the parallel with Jesus here? He's answering his God-forgiven role. He goes on in 24b. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see, he's joining two images here. There's a race to be run, okay, that I might finish my ministry, and then there's a service that I may accomplish and testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Now, Paul didn't die in Jerusalem because it wasn't God's plan for him to die in Jerusalem. He wanted him to reach Rome, but he endured much suffering there. Suffering that over an extended period of time from the stretch of the, uh, from the Jewish capital all the way to the Gentile capital. But again, he recognized his ministry was to do what? Testify to the gospel of grace. This word gospel here, euangelion, is used, this is the only time it's used in the book of Acts. And it speaks of the grace of our Lord Jesus that this grace provides salvation for Jew and Gentile on the same basis. It's the very word of God. Now, there was another outstanding characteristic with Paul. He did not shrink from teaching the whole counsel of God. Look at verses 25 through 27 of chapter 20. You see, he hits us again with this phrase, second time he used it, and now behold, he wants them to recognize that there is significance in what he's about to say, that danger is awaiting him, but he is still going to evangelize there. Look at 25b. I know that none of you, I know of none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the gospel will ever see my face again. Again, he is not really speaking of his intimate death here, but he's saying that he recognized that God is calling him to a larger witness and he's not going to make it back there. So he wants to make sure that they understand the gravity of their charge. And I want you to look at Ezekiel 33, 1 through 6. Because this will bring everything into perspective when he says, I'm innocent of their blood. Ezekiel 33, 1 through 6. Are you with me? The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, speak to your people and say to them, 
if I bring the sword upon the land and the people of the land take a man from among them and make him their watchman. And if he sees the sword coming upon the land and blows the trumpet and warns the people, then if anyone who hears the sound of the trumpet does not take warning and the sword comes and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. So you sound the trumpet. You see, that's why I'm not worried. Because I blow the trumpet, you do what you do. But you're not going to be able to say you didn't know. You're going to do it because you're disobedient. He goes on. He heard the sound of the trumpet and did not take warning. His blood shall be upon himself. Now, this is where you need the word. I need, I need the word. But he, if he had taken warning, he would have saved his life. But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet... So that the people are not warned and the sword comes and takes any one of them. The person is taken away in their iniquity. So they're responsible for their sin, right? But the blood I will require at the watchman's hand. So Paul is emphasizing here. I'm innocent of any of your blood. And I'm innocent because I did not shrink, second time he uses shrink, I did not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. I didn't just pick and choose and preach the happy passages of the Bible. Don't you know I sit down every year and figure out what my preaching schedule is going to be? And I can hop around and just be happy all year. But no, you pick a book and you preach through it so they understand what God is saying and the gravity of his word and you're going to come upon things that are challenging and uncomfortable and when you preach book by book, verse by verse guess what? Everybody know what's happening next week. You can't skip it. Paul gave them a comprehensive view of the will of God. You can't do what you are supposed to do if you don't know what to do. This included the promise of salvation for every race. It included the appeal for all individuals to repent and believe the gospel promises. It gave the whole breadth and depth and width of God's teaching. And then Paul looks at them in verses 28 and 31 of chapter 20. And he requests that they remain firm in the faith. His primary intention here, my friends, is to make sure they do their duty and they do it effectively. He wants to make sure they recognize what's on the horizon because he's not going to be back. Look what he says in 28a. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Christian leaders cannot care adequately for others if they neglect the care and nurture of themselves. That means you're in every waking moment that you can put aside, your nose should be in the scriptures somewhere. 
Every time you get 10 minutes together, you should be praying. Every time you can, you should be fasting for yourself and for the church and for those things that only fasting and pray will move out of the life of the body. You see here echoes and allusions to how the leaders of Israel were called to pastor God's flock. I think something's really interesting here that people might want to argue with me about, but they wrong and I'm right, so praise God. <laughs> Look at Numbers 11, 24 through 25. Because I tell you, this shows you the spirit that should be on elders. Numbers 11, 24 through 25. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord. And he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down, look here. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke to him and took some of the capital S spirit that was on him. Personal pronoun refers to Moses and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing so. Paul is bringing these elders back to the fact that I have taught you a certain way. I have trained you a certain way. Follow the example that I'm following in Christ. It should be a complete line up. If your pastor is overbearing and rough and hard to get along with, then you can expect your elders to be the same. But if your pastor is a servant leader, then your elders should espouse to be servant leaders. They should have the same spirit. And he tells us here that the focus on the spirit's work is to prepare these ministers of God to care for the flock, the inclusive church of Jews and Gentiles. They are to care for the church of God, which was obtained by his own blood. Their watchfulness, their care, was to be effective pastoral ministry. Ephesians, as you were, Exodus 19 and 5. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people, for all the earth is mine. You know, he's talking about his church, right? First Peter 2 and 9, but you are chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people from my own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Every congregation is bought by the blood of Christ and the saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us in Romans 3, 23 through 26, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because of his divine forbearance. He had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is a heart of the gospel message for us. We are able to sustain. This will sustain the church through persecution, through false teaching. It will give them hope for what is coming. The reason elders need to keep watch over themselves and the flock that is committed to their care, Paul gives them right now. He tells them that there is there are fierce wolves that are going to come in to the flock. He says fierce wolves. Look at the contrast here. There are fierce wolves that will come in not sparing the flock. Look at the contrast. He tells, make sure, pay attention to you taking care of yourself and care for the flock. He's saying there are people who are coming in that won't spare the flock. And then he warns, I mean, this is just unbelievable. He warns, all these people are not from the outside. Some of these people are from among you that are going to attract people to their twisted values so they build up their own fiefdoms. They will not spare the flock. First Timothy 4, 1 through 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter days, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences have been seared. What does it mean to sear your conscience? It becomes unfeeling. Nothing phases you to manipulate and tell a lie from Scripture doesn't bother you. To proof text something that's totally out of context doesn't bother you. As long as it's a a means to an end. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know truth. Paul says, even from your own number, there'll be those who distort the truth in order to draw away disciples for themselves. They will cause heresy and schism. What is schism? You know, they'll break up. History shows us in every generation, there have been Christian leaders who attracted people to their own way of thinking to satisfy some deep-seated need for approval, and here comes that word again, popularity. Be proper, not popular. If, you be, if you're popular, let it be because they know that you are a man of God that stays in the sin of God's will. Not because you're trying to win their affections from, for some other reason. Look at 30. From among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night and day to admonish everyone with tears. I don't know if you recognize this. I'm going to let you in on something. Most pastors spend their 
entire ministry and lives in three different rooms. Depression, dependence, deliverance. And you just go in and out of those rooms. You're depressed because you don't see your ministry making a change in people's lives. What you observe. You, then you check yourself and make sure, hey, I'm on the right, that I'm telling, am I holding anything back? Am I shrinking? Am I letting them off the hook? And then you throw yourself into total dependence on God because, okay, obviously, I'm not bringing anything to the table, Lord. I need you. And then you go from dependence to deliverance. And then before you know it, Satan's back at your door and you're back in depression. I mean, it's just a circle. I mean, do you know how many pastors this year alone have committed suicide? How many walk away from the ministry every single year? Man, it's, it's going to be a, <laughs> a health problem here in a minute. It's just, uh, just amazing. But he says... Remember, for three years, I did not cease day and night to admonish everyone with tears. So you got to stay in that middle room of dependence. Stay in the room of dependence and let deliverance creep in and visit every now and then. But stay in dependence. Paul, lastly, here wants to show them the cost of leadership. This warning implies that the elders could not rely on themselves this is really interesting I'm going to read 32 and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified he doesn't even trust the strength of good elders to get, keep themselves in check. He said, you may be a good elder, but you're not good enough to keep yourself in check. So I entrust you to God and the word of his grace. Because he understands that God and the gospel cannot be divided. He understands that God uses the gospel to save those who believe, both Jews and Gentiles. He understands that the gospel is a message from God that brings people to the powerful understanding that Christ is the one who builds us up. Christ is the one who shares with us his inheritance. Christ is the one that shares it with all of those who are sanctified. How does he build a church? By the means of the gospel. God has eternal an eternal inheritance for those who trust in Christ and he enables them to obtain that inheritance it is the gospel that is declared to those who are being sanctified believers that have given up their rebellion against a holy god it is this god who saves and then he tells us that he never covered anyone's silver, gold, or apparel. And then he brings us, and I'm jumping ahead here, to a saying that you don't see. It's a personal saying that Jesus has made known or he's heard is more blessed to give than to receive. Now the principle here is he's not saying it's better for the person 
who can give to, he's saying basically it's better than the person who can give to help others rather than to amass wealth for themselves. You don't have a problem with wealth, but you've got to be a conduit as well. Paul encourages them not to be covetous because that spoils relationships and it hinders the work of the gospel. That they are not to seek to just advance themselves materially because if they do that, they'll be tempted to continue to do that. He wants them to recognize how important it is for them to trust in the Lord in all things. Then 36 and 38 is just a scene of great joy on a relationship that they have shared and great sorrow on seeing him go away. First Thessalonians 1, 2 through 6 says, We give thanks to God for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in also the power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of man we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Don't ever doubt, elders, that your example makes an impact and, a, and, and has influence in people's lives? Your good example or your selfish example? It's going to have an impact. It's going to have influence. I want to close with Matthew. Look at Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. It's always going to be about the remnant. But that doesn't mean that you don't proclaim the goodness of God's grace to everyone. But don't get tied up in numbers, in reaction. Don't sell out to that. Sell out the truth. Sell out to things that will be life-changing for people. Not something that, you know, that gives temporary relief. I mean, money can give you temporary relief. But then also, the lack of it can take it all away. If your hope is built up in just that. You are called for more than Sunday work.
it's an abomination to check in on Saturday night to know, you know, what we need to pray about tomorrow. We need to be praying all freaking week. You need to know what we're going through and how to pray that we get through. You have no idea what we dealt with this week. But God is faithful. And when you are able to share those experiences, you're like, man, this is for real. That I know what was about to happen, and I know what happened, and how faithful God is. You know, you don't want to know God just by what you read. You want to feel Him. Because in the words of that great 21, uh, 20, 20th century philosopher Curtis Mayfield, God will give you something that you can feel. So let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just love and praise you. We thank you for this time together. There's nothing like you in all the earth. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your intimacy. We thank you for your covering. We thank you for your ability to deliver and your steadfastness that can be t- depended upon. We love you and praise you. We will, we trust in the bottom of our hearts. We want to serve you. It's in Jesus' name.